Now that you've cast out the evil sorcerer and taken his treasures and searched his colon for gems, it's time for you to kick back and listen to the Safe a Half Sideshow. Welcome to the Safe or Half Sideshow, where it's all fun and games until somebody takes a four-sider to the eye. Everybody, it's the Safer Half Podcast, a podcast that covers old school RPGs and the modern games inspired by them. And it's that 70s show. We're going to talk about the groovy 70s. I am one of your hosts, DM Mike, the Fred in this mystery machine. And joining me, our own little Velma, is DM Liz. My glasses. I can't find my glasses. Well done. And busy off getting a sandwich, or hopefully back already. Our shag, DM Corbett. Like, wow, man. Soinks! <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason, that frickin' monkey Davy Jones, DM Jim. <laughs> <laughs> or Scooby. <laughs> Choose the answer you like best. And the nefarious figure behind the rubber mask is John Peterson joining us. Thank you for coming on to the show, John. You know, and I would have gotten away with that if it weren't for these meddling kids. <laughs> yes. Or in this case, meddling old people. But anyway. No, no, we're young at heart. Ah, so we're going to talk to John about RPGs in the 70s. We'll doubtlessly cover some of the info that was covered in Playing at the World. But if he's got any new nuggets of information, hopefully we'll hear some of them. Oh, you know but, he does. But first, do we have any emails? Oddly enough, for once, we have emails. I read all the emails on the face of the earth. No emails were harmed in the making of this podcast. (laughs) And if you want to write the podcast, where would you write DM Corbett? Probably at an email address. (laughs) Probably ours. I'm going to say save for half podcast at gmail.com. Yes. First try. It was my total 100% guaranteed try. Now, is it is it save four with a numeral four, or is it like spelled out? F-O-R? Oh, no, it's spelled out. It's spelled out. Okay. We're not, you we're millennials? We're not cool enough to do the numerics, you know. Some of us are so old, we end our texts with periods. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be me. Text? What's a text? <laughs> well, let's hear the first email, Liz. All right. Our first email is from Michael Wallace, and Michael writes, Hey folks, I'm a new listener and have been devouring the episodes available on iTunes. If you are interested in votes on games to discuss, please discuss my all-time favorite game, Star Frontiers. Oh, We've gotten a-, a lot of requests for Star Frontiers. 
we do, we we, do need to get to that. Someday. Yeah, I was going to say, we may actually have to do a show about Star Frontiers. I'd be in for that. I bought it off the shelf and we played it. Best traveler supplement ever. <laughs> <laughs> now, now. <laughs> Not saying I don't like the game. And if you want to have extra fun with Star Frontiers, maybe you could get like Lauren Chick or like Zeb Cook or somebody. You know those guys, right? Yeah. They could come on and talk about alien worlds, about the, the development project behind it originally and the controversies around that. It could be fun. Of course, you're just probably hoping I'll say the traveler comment in front of them, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I think it might not be the first time they heard it. Probably, probably. It, Sorry, anyway, go on, Liz. Well, that was that was all Michael had to say. Okay, well. And rest assured, Michael, we will get to Star Frontiers. We promise. Indeed. Yes. Our next email is from B.A. Baracus. Holy. Who knew he listened to the podcast? That's I know, amazing. right? Oh, I'm just seeing Shaggy and Scooby and the gang, you know, in the episode where the A-team <laughs> are guest stars, right? And <laughs> If that didn't happen... It should have. But God knows everyone else was on the show. Anyway, <laughs> Mr. Baracus writes, Dear Save for Halfers, new listener here. Gotta say that me and my crew are really enjoying hearing about all of the old school games. In fact, GM Hannibal decided to run us through some of the stuff you reviewed. We really enjoyed Call of Cthulhu. Those great old ones are some bad dudes. GM <laughs> Mike, thank you for that tip about the flying headbutt. It works great and is a really fun move. Ironic and, considering who really wrote this. <laughs> and my mohawk provides just enough cushion to keep me from knocking myself out. <laughs> and he used to have a faux hawk anyway. The only problem with the game was that Murdoch kept intentionally missing his sanity checks. That dude is certifiable crazy. I pity the fool. Unfortunately, Castles and Crusades was kind of a bust. We didn't even make it past the opening tavern encounter. Faceman kept hitting on everybody. Serving winches, barkeeps, one-armed half-orc fighter. If it had a pulse, he flirted with it. Gotta I pity that fool, too. Had to be a bard. I'm not sure that's Castles and Crusades' fault. <laughs> <laughs> We are currently in a top-secret campaign. We have a great backstory as a group of ex-Special Forces dudes who escaped from military prison and are now working as soldiers of fortune. That's the unbelievable. Game, <laughs> the game is really fun, but there must be something wrong with the combat system. We keep shooting at stuff, but we can't hit a damned thing. <laughs> what kind of band of heroes can't shoot straight? <laughs> the A-team? Nah, more like the F-team. I pity all of us fools. Well, so obviously the A-team should be playing Commando, the SPI oh, game from 1979, not Top Secret. Just a little tip yeah. for you guys. Oh, gosh. He's I not wrong. Since, <laughs> I haven't read that since it was in Strategy and Tactics. It was like Squad Leader, wasn't it? So Commando, it's interesting. This will start to get us into the 70s. It was a game that was actually published with two booklets in its box, one that was a booklet of like war game rules and one that was a booklet of role-playing rules. And this was kind of, people did this to like hedge their bets at the time. There are a couple systems that did this. But the great thing about Commando that, that I always come back to is how it has this system. It's really based on like TV shows and movies about commandos, not about trying to like simulate a, being, being like a real commando. That's like dangerous. Ah. And, but in this, you would have like ranks, like I'm like a TV action hero and you get like 
powers that you're only supposed to have if you're on TV, not if you're like a commando in the jungle. And so it's it's perfect for the A-Team. It was made for the A-Team. Okay, so kind of like that Panzer Pranks game. Less lighthearted. You know, again, a, a genuine attempt to simulate what the physics of an Unreal Commando experience on TV would be. Um, so not, not quite a parody like Panzer Pranks. So kind of the way Feng Shui was supposed to be as far as yes. simulating being in a movie, a movie Very action much. hero. Yeah, Hong Kong chop sucking film. So an adventuring yeah, I mean, party that would have a chance in Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit of this in Top Secret, like the fame and fortune stuff, right? Where you're, you're too famous to be shot if you're James Bond by just some some lackey, right? It's trying to get to what those how those stories work more than kind of what it is to be a secret agent. And the beginning of the idea of the mook, you know, just some schmuck with a gun that is annoying, but isn't a serious threat. All right, well, anything else to the email? It winds up with... That absolutely love all the stuff you've talked about so far, but you really should do an episode about robots. Big, stompy robots that run around shooting each other with lasers and missiles and other cool stuff. Yeah, that would be awesome. P.S. None of that crazy Robotech stuff. The game I'm thinking of begins with a B and rhymes with cattle deck. Uh... <laughs> Battle droids. Battle droids, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, just for full disclosure, that was my infamous friend, Ben Fialco, who he had the flying headbutt in Call of Cthulhu, who got the 90% skill in Call of Cthulhu's flying headbutt. <laughs> well, thanks for the email, Ben. And yeah, maybe we'll talk about Battletech someday, as soon as I convince these guys to... Someday. It's not really a role-playing game. It kind of is, so, you know. Uh, wasn't there a role-playing supplement that we yeah, might Mech be able Warrior. to cover? So I never knew anybody that actually used it. Battletech, but it's it's in the same wheelhouse. We could probably do that. I mean, yeah, sometimes it, that stuff's flexible. Uh, that uh, Kinzer game, The Great Space Race, isn't a role-playing game until you drop a nuke on Tim Cask's ship. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the definition of a role-playing game. We just need to drop a nuke on Tim Cask's whatever. Gotcha. <laughs> Tough in a D&D game, but not impossible. This sounds like you're just begging for a total party kill here. <laughs> well, at least. All right. Well, next email. Our next email is from J.V. West. J.V. Ah, my dude. He says, greetings, savers. It has been too long since I last wrote. I just finished episode 11 and was naturally honored to have my name mentioned regarding the Blue Home character sheets. It never fails to make me smile when people enjoy something I created, so thank you for the positive vibes. As always, hearing your voices talk gaming also makes me smile. I realized recently that my re-entry to gaming back in 2012 or so was heavily influenced by listening to Spellburn, Roll for Initiative, and especially Save or Die. It is a strange and wonderful feeling to have nostalgia for voices that speak to other nostalgia. It is a good thing in life, and I thank you for it. DM Corbett, too. <laughs> and the other guy. And the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> you just got Marianne and Professor. And the rest. I totally did. <laughs> Welcome uh, to Hufflepuff. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably kind of hard because he was talking about Save or Die, our old show that so nice, Corbett so nice, was so nice, not so nice. a part of. And it's like, oh, and this show too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, considering how many people were asking about you in North Texas last year, it's you have made an impact, Corbett. Well, what people don't realize is that I'm actually just a character made up for Liz to do on the side, practicing her voice acting. It's only really Mike and Liz. 
Liz, agreed. You weren't gonna say that. Mike, I love you, but you have to understand that people have to know. Liz, stop doing that, saying that in that voice. It creeps me out. Right. No one's going to believe it's really me, Mike. Don't worry. <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about this on air, how after Liz went to voice acting classes, she started Billy Westing the whole podcast whenever any of us don't feel like showing up. Shh, our secret. In fact, John Peterson isn't even really here. None of you are here. <laughs> it's all me. She's just using the index of playing at the world to, to come up with answers. <laughs> the index wow. really isn't that useful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I got a need copy, so I just do a word search. I never use the index. Yeah, me too. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks, JV. Uh, <laughs> any other emails? Um, we have another email. Our last email, also by JV West. Oh, two <laughs> JV emails in one show. I don't know if that's allowed. Wow. <laughs> May have to pace all, ourselves. All JV, all the time. All the time. And this one, he says, are you havesies? Twas with a mad smile I did snatch yon episode ten and four. Aye, your reputations go before ye as a maidenhead goes before a man o' war. Ye salty dogs. Anticipation what palpitated me heart fluttered all about me as I listened to what I knew would be an epic discussion of proper pirate RPG loot. Wow, he was disappointed. Good lord, is that an email or an audition to be on the show? <laughs> <laughs> Then, like a clipper, what was rammed in the broadside, me old wrinkled brow drooped in disappointment. This here RPG, privateers and gentlemen, it ain't got no pirates in it at all. Yar. And I slapped myself silly, as it became more and more apparent. Not only would this episode not feature pirates, but I can't even speak proper pirate talk whatsoever. My whole life is a sham. I climbed down off the poop and shuffled me bones onto the dreaded plank. The great abyss of Neptune's fishbowl stretched out beneath me. Don't forget, you can buy a rotten burrow. <laughs> then I thinks to myself, Self, them scallywags ain't yet reviewed furry pirates. The pirate RPG what lets you be a hamster, toting twin flintlocks. Ooh. With a tear in me eye, I step back off the plank and look up into a blue sky. Hope washing over me skin like spiced rum. Over your fur. Till that day, <laughs> may the wind be in your sails, halfers. JV, is he kidding, West? <laughs> I, I doubt it. <laughs> Thanks, JV. Let's hope that he's kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh... Yeah, I was about to say, I think that's inner city games. So if people want fuzzy pirates, let us know. Thank you, JV. I enjoyed reading this email so much. <laughs> I am forever in your debt. Yar. I'm pretty sure I could call Chris Clark up and get us copies. <laughs> well, that's something to keep in mind. If you want 70s pirate action from RPGs, you could go to like Buccaneer, the uh, adversary. Buccaneer or Crimson Cutlass and get one of those. Huh. I've never heard of those, actually. Cutlass. Yeah, this this is the great thing about RPGs the 1970s. There's a lot more of them that people haven't heard of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, right. Like if you go to Wikipedia and see the list by year, the ones that aren't there. Yeah. Right, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because we covered Privateers and Gentlemen by FGU a couple episodes ago, and I we had chosen it because I had chosen my fault because I thought pirates, not, not so, so much. much. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 
it's ratio hornblower anyway yeah i mean i think that was actually that is based on traditions of victory i think which was the Walter Williams original. Right. Comes with two books. There's kind of a book of like wargaming rules and a book of role-playing rules. You know, like Heart of Oak or something? or Yeah, oh, maybe you're right, yeah. Something like that. But anyway, yeah. But it's got in the name, Privateers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, unless anyone has any announcements, we shall head to a podcast break and then go right into talking about that groovy 70s. Into a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts, they came. The Grognard Files, a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. Mad balls, mad balls, gross for one, gross for all. We play with a mad ball, they're gross, funny, yucky, sick. There's eight, so you can take your pick. We throw, catch, it's uh-oh fun. There's so much gross in every one. Freaky fun is what they're for. There's so much ugly, so much more. Gross for one, gross for all. We play with a mad ball. We play with a mad ball. We play with a mad ball. Mad ball. Freaky fun for everyone, sold separately from Amtoy. Mad ball. Seventies RPGs. I was trying hard to think of a question that maybe you haven't been asked. So I may have failed, but hopefully this will get things rolling. What is the biggest thing about 70s RPGs that you think most gamers don't know? Probably just how many there were. So I, I track about 50 before 1980. Holy crap. Wow, yeah. that is a lot. And when I say I track about 50, I say about because there's like a whole bunch of corner cases and edge cases. And really, this all just comes down to what we want to call an RPG. And, and why we want to call it that. And there were mm-hmm. games that have RPG attributes that people called RPGs and other ones that they, they didn't necessarily. So it was, it was really messy. You know, the term RPG, right, kind of came out of a critical discussion where people looked at this crop of games and role-playing was the, the quality that people kind of projected onto it in retrospect. But what qualified something to be an RPG or not um, is just countless amounts of critical ink have been spilled on this subject. And I, I don't think there's a ton of consensus about what, what even the properties are and what, what you rule in or out of that. But even with that amount of ambiguity, I still think about 50 is right. Well, I was, you're talking about games that were printed and published, right? Not just the hand around type. Oh, what was the, the, the one I was trying to talk about last time? The German one? Bra- Broadheim? No, Broad... Oh, Bronstein? Bronstein. Because that was right. supposed to be handed around and wasn't actually printed, right? Oh, I don't think it was even handed around. <laughs> I think it was it was run informally, but there wasn't like a system 
behind the Brownstein games in the Twin Cities, you know, and, the, and there was a whole family of those too, which are extremely diverse. There was this Brownstone game, right, which was a Western that was based on this, but it, it wasn't like there was some game system for it. But yeah, you're poking at the right question there and that there was there also were a ton of semi-published games that when you look at it, you're like, should we really consider this something that was available? Like a good example of that would be Mirkwood Tales, a game that turned out to be very uh, profoundly influential. It was a game run by this guy, Eric Roberts, who was in Boston. And he printed a rule book for it that was, you know, it's like 70 pages, a pretty substantial independent system. And really the only reason that people, anyone knows about this today is because he had two really interesting players in his campaign. These two guys, one was Willie Crowther and the other was Dave Lebling. Now, Willie Crowther went on to write Adventure, the, the computer text game adventure. Ah. And Dave Lebling oh, wow. was one of the founders of Infocom, one of the authors of Zork. <laughs> <laughs> so, awesome. you know, because of that, they talked a lot about Mirkwood Tales and eventually got a copy of it from Eric Roberts, who uh, was professor at Stanford of computer science um, in five or six years ago. I think he, he moved somewhere else. But, but you know, g- games like this where you're like, okay, this was printed up. It's, it's like a rule book. It has a cover. It's got an index and a table of contents. It has all the things you'd expect a, a game to have. But it wasn't like practically available, right? It's not like you could go buy it at Strategy Fantasy World or something, right? It was a um, more informally circulated. It was made for its local gaming group then, essentially. Right. You know, and then there are things that are just just a little beyond that. Like you, you guys may know I wrote about this um, Minneapolis dungeon game, Rules to the Game of Dungeon, which came out in 1974. And it's a shorter rule book. It's, you know, close to like 20 pages and 70. This was something that somebody distributed and they, they made it available at the World Science Fiction Convention. They published the entire edition of it through a fanzine as well. Should we say that's out? Was that a game that was like out there? And, and it just gets harder and harder when you look at things that maybe maybe 100 copies of this were printed. Was it really out? Even if it was sold? Tough to say. I'm picturing like staple-bound mimeograph typeset booklets being handed out like newsletters for some of those. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to if somebody bothered to sell them, I think that tends to be a good indication. I mean, that, that's all Tunnels and Trolls was, right? When Ken St. Andre first brought that to Westercon in 1975, it was something basically he made at the university print shop. It's just that because he sold it for three bucks, we, we all tend to feel pretty strong. Yes, that was a product. It was out there. You could get it. It wasn't really until Rick Loomis picked it up and was distributing it through Flying Buffalo that it then really reached a, a wide audience. If you know, so that that's one of the factors. Did they sell it? How many were available? But it, it gets really hairy trying to sort out what we should count as a system or not. Yeah, I've often found that looking at some of the stuff from the seventies, there's that really blurry line: is this a role playing game or is it a skirmish war game where each figure represents one person? And that that gets tough even in the same game. Like, you know, look at Warriors of Mars, TSR product, yeah. 1974. I was just thinking of that. You know, it has rules for playing as John Carter and Tars Tarkin and like all the familiar characters from the books. It kind of lets you have it your own way, like Burger King, right? It's like you can play this as a wargamey campaign game, or you can play it as a very D&D-like game with levels and experience and stats. And it was just kind of unleashed, right? <laughs> like you, you guys make of it what you will. <laughs> and whether we, in retrospect, should consider that an RPG, it's, it's a really tough question. In some cases, if it predates the coining of the term role-playing game, then it was just, they, they considered it all war games because in Monsters, Monsters, we just reviewed last episode, Ken St. Andre introduces it as a new kind of war game right in the intro. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's that... what, the fourth edition, he was still calling it that? 
Well, the it's just a reprint of the original edition, so yeah. In the Monsters, Monsters, it said that. I specifically remember Jim pointing that out. Actually, I have a question, though. Would this would this mean that it is coincidental that everybody suddenly starts doing the same thing? Did, it all, did all the gaming come from one source, or was it you know great minds think alike, and everybody just started doing it right around the same time? Just coincidentally? Gary Gygax kind of took off with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. It's, a, it's kind of a controversial one, and in part because you know there are people who are still alive, right, who, who kind of are arguing for their own legacies on something that turned out to be pretty important for like world culture, you know, who, who kind of see different paths this came together. I mean, the way I look at it, sure, I, I see D&D as a manifestation of something that was broad, that was happening across several different communities and you know D D kind of got the magic formula right and did something that just by combining the right elements in the right way the total was greater than the sum of its parts but yeah i mean i i do think there were people there's a game i read about called midgard which is the example i usually cite in these kinds of discussions that was so close to what D is that was around since like 1972 and people knew about it. It's a game that is referenced in some of the earliest like TSR stuff. The first strategic review mentions Midgard. It's not that people didn't know about it. It just it didn't quite get the formula right. It was a fantasy role-playing game. It was an ongoing campaign. You could propose to do any, any action you wanted. The rules were just guidelines and there were spell lists. There were magic items that played individual characters who have these adventures and it, it was so close, but just not quite right in some respects. So yeah, I, I definitely see D&D as something that kind of just managed to find the right combination of elements, but those elements were, were all out there and everybody was kicking them around one way or another. Would you say it's fair to say, I mean, because I I, I, uh, I love it when people have to get it down to a specific, you know, January 1st, 1974, kind of, you know, and on that side of the line, it's this, and on that side of the line, it's that, when real life doesn't happen that way. So, I mean, you could say it's both, right? Both uh, an inspiration to combine things in a certain groupings by Gary and Dave separately and together, and it was of the times. Like, you know, who invented cubism, Picasso or Brock? Well, they both did. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah. This was something where a whole bunch of elements. I know I've been on a podcast before where somebody asked me, you know, what would have happened if DD hadn't come out? Like, would there still be role playing games and who might have created them, what they might look like? You know, would Tony Bath in England, for example, have taken his Hyborian campaign, taking the stuff that he wrote in setting up a war games campaign in 1973, which had a lot of the right, had the characterization, had like all these kind of, you know, system elements that are very adjacent to DD. Would he or his players have elaborated that into something that really gave? us role-playing, it's, it's quite possible. On the other hand, there were a lot of people in that area who were very dismissive of role-playing games. And do you think that kind of negative pushback would have prevented someone in the England area from going further with like it? Donald that we might have yeah, that we might that we had the ability to do here in America because they're not right there saying that what you're doing is stupid. And so certainly, uh, Don Featherstone famously, you know, really pushed back on the fantasy elements and Tony Bath stuff. Mm -hmm. Featherstone pushed back on all, all kinds of these things. He pushed back on people that wrote kind of battle reports that were too narrative-y, right? You know, he, he didn't want to see dialogue. 
and as the dawn you know came before us the the light revealed the, the fluttering flag stood above the yeah there there definitely was a lot of pushback on that and there was after D came out right there were tons of people who thought D was really silly after it came out so ask avalon hill john it almost sounds like you're suggesting that even way back in the 70s there were gatekeepers and there's nothing really new under the sun certainly gary felt that way gary felt like avalon hill and spi and those people were all dismissed him and tsr was this you know scrappy upstart that was living under the oppression of the big wargaming companies who didn't take it seriously and he definitely managed to get the last laugh on that one yeah it's uh it's interesting how think how you know various new ideas or, or that sort of thing can i mean i'm not a fan of magic the gathering but i but i think you could make an argument that when it first came out it was the same thing well it revitalized the gaming industry i think yeah. it was a totally new direction but it got people excited again yeah and you could argue it did the same thing because I know in Playing at the World, you mentioned, John, that whether it was true or just the impression of the companies at the time, but in the 70s, a lot of working companies felt that they were stagnating. Well, I mean, I, I think they, they'd hit a ceiling, right? And there was, you know, there, there was just a cap on the market that they were going to get, and they didn't really know how to innovate to get into something that was going to reach a wider audience. And, you know, I mean, the, the story of D&D is largely the story of how this, this kind of fluke game, right, managed to escape from what was a pretty small and insular community and make it out and become this this massive mainstream phenomenon. Yeah, which that reminds me of another question I wanted to ask you. And it may be, you know, something that there's no real way to know, but I'm just curious. I get the impression, reading both your book and others, that while both Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson really enjoyed the D&D type dungeon exploring fantasy, you know, type adventure, in their hearts, they really viewed themselves as wargamers, particularly miniature wargamers first, and this role-playing second. Do you think that's fair? Um, I think once D&D got big enough, they both went all in. Um, I think they, they both you know drank their, their own Kool-Aid uh, pretty, pretty, pretty thoroughly. But yeah, I think early on especially, there, it was much more complicated. Arneson was certainly very committed to his Napoleonic wargaming, and he heavily invested at that. Even years after D&D came out, that seemed to occupy more of his attention than fantasy gaming did. And Gary was also kind of all over the place in terms of the things that that he played, and he strongly self-identified as a wargamer. But once RPGs, again, became this, this thing, and it wasn't really until 1976 that TSR started using RPG as a term for the things that they made. Then, then there was this battle line drawn, right? And this is part of a larger conflict that they saw between this, this upstart phenomenon and then the big publishers like Avalon Hill and SPI. And it, it was mirrored by the conflict between Gen Con and Origins. You know, it all, this was this whole kind of set of little skirmishes that were fought over this. I think once those identities got cemented, then yeah, I think they were, TSR was certainly very invested in RPGs being this thing, and that's what they do, and that's what's important. What company first coined the term? RPG. That's that's a tough one. It's always tough to say who first coined something. I mean, I think what made the term popular was was Richard Berg's reviews in Strategy and Tactics and Moves at the end of 1975, uh, really after Origins, that people started looking at Ungard and D&D and Empire of the Petal Throne and saying there's this this cluster 
of games. You know, the, what they seem to have in common is this kind of freeform, boardless role-playing dimension to them. And it, that everything kind of went from there. You know, Berg may have heard it earlier from some other people, and there, there were parallel usages. But, you know, s was enormously influential at the time. It's what, it was kind of the biggest magazine that just people in the community read. Anything published in that would catch on. Thinking about differences inside the gaming community, I was always kind of curious because I, I really didn't pay attention to it much at the, at the time, although it kind of hit me in the face every so often when I go to a convention. I lived in the South and then I moved to California and I've, I've kind of run into people who came from the Great Lakes area. But there's a very different mindset for gamers from the North, North South and West as far as the, the way they play, what they accept. Would you say that influenced a lot of, of gaming at the time or in general? Definitely. No, I mean, the people who are very close to ground zero, right, to either Wisconsin or the, the Twin Cities, you know, they, they were getting indoctrinated firsthand, right, by, by the principals or people who knew them or had learned the game from them. You get out to New York, Boston, LA, San Francisco, and you see people who have kind of a very different cultural background in this, who probably come more from science fiction fandom, they game some, but, you know, people like Lee Gold, right, who started Alarms and Excursions, she was really coming out of science fiction fandom. And and yeah, they, they definitely brought a different set of assumptions about what you're supposed to bring to the game, how collaborative versus competitive it should be, how much this is an exercise in kind of collective authorship versus a battle of wits. You see, you see Gygax talk a lot about that kind of battle of wits that, you know, you're setting up, the, the tests that the dungeon master is constructing, whereas people on the West Coast had much more of a, the object of the game is to tell this awesome story, and we want to have all these like heavily story-driven mechanics around it. So yeah, and you see this absolutely from the very start. Um, a, a lot of people today, you know, draw this battle line around the OSR that, oh, there was this kind of this originalist philosophy in the 1970s that was very, very wargaming specific. Really, I yeah. think they, the philosophies were, were pretty much coeval as far as I can tell. Yeah, well, I know Gygax was really married to the idea of the tournaments, D&D tournaments with competitions and awards, and that sort of thing, like the wargame tournaments. And I don't know, I just always felt like the idea of D&D tournaments is very awkward. It's not like a Stalingrad tournament or, <laughs> right. you know, but War in the Pacific or something. But if you were going to go to Origins in 1975 to run the game, kind of tournament is what that convention environment expected. And that this is how you end up with a Tomb of Horrors, right? <laughs> you, yeah. you go to, uh, you know, an environment like that. We've got, you can need to put 15 people in each party and, you know, just whittle them down to the hardiest survivors. And I, I will be running that very module in about five days. <laughs> Good. I feel bad for your players. <laughs> hey, they know what they're Are getting Are you going to run the the mono version or the one in the D&D Art and Arcana, Jim? Oh, uh, whew, that's interesting. God, why didn't you suggest that a couple weeks ago? <laughs> Sorry. No, no, just, just the, the, the normal monochrome uh, module, but because it's me and I can't do anything straightforward. It's, uh, it's an MCC game, so it's been teleported to the post-apocalypse and now the maser rifles and mutants get to see how they do back in the day my players would have loved to have been able to take laser rifles and stuff into tomb of horrors yeah that doesn't sound like a bad idea actually <laughs> put, it, put it in a mo well i've run it twice before and there's a pile of that crap down in the lich's treasure room now <laughs> take all the lasers you want you're still gonna die <laughs> uh speaking of that book i know you were a, a contributor to that and I just got finished reading it myself. I really appreciated how it really dealt with the art paradigm of 
you know, the mindset from the 70s, from the 74 to 79, 80 and onwards. And yeah, I it, was think- a, it was a lot of fun to do that. I mean, I spent a lot of time, obviously, studying the 70s and D&D, but I hadn't really looked at it from that perspective before. Like, who is Greg Bell, right? Who, who, who is Keenan Powell, really? Right. You know, like, what, what, what were these people, how they get involved? And I think when you understand that they were like local teenagers, basically, a lot of things make more sense. <laughs> I could tell you who they were. They were nearby. Yeah, I, I feel kind of bad because whenever we've covered original D&D in the past, especially on the other podcast, right, Corbett? You will not speak its name. Seven day, seven day, seven day, seven I always kind of poo-pooed Greg Bell's art because I used to call it booger art because, you know, and now that I've read Art and Arcana and realize he was just a teenager, I feel really bad. I feel like I owe him an apology because... God, I'd hate people. Dude, I'm telling you, in high school, I was swiping Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko art like crazy, too. Yeah, but would you want to be judged now based on your art from when you were a teenager? Hell no. Yeah. I I bet it was awesome. And yeah, just (laughs) having the perspective, again, that D&D's entire art budget was $100 and that Greg Bell was being paid $2 per image that he made on this. And even with 70s inflation, that's still not much. No. Uh, that still wasn't a movie ticket. Yeah, that was probably what eight bucks, maybe eight to ten dollars equivalent. About fanzine, our art fees, more or less. Shocking. Fan- I was going to say fanzines. <laughs> you get a free copy of the zine, and that is your payment. Well, yeah. <laughs> and- well, we've had we've had uh, Bob Bloodsaw the second on the podcast, and he's told us directly. You know, at Judges Guild, it was his dad was like, "You get five bucks, you've got an hour to do it. Crank it out." <laughs> Well, you could do that when you have slave family labor, but yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and you just imagine this poor Greg Bell is being told, okay, you know, we need you to make a beholder. <laughs> like, you know, it's not like anybody knew what a beholder should look like. And well, you know, it's a floating eye thing with some teeth. Right, oh, and right, stalks. Right. What? Right. <laughs> it's a giant eye, and it's got fangs, and it's got lots of little smaller eyes coming off of it. It's like, ah. Well, somebody <laughs> told that dude bugbears had jack-o'-lantern heads, and that's where he went. <laughs> I still think that's kind of awesome, and I would like to run some bugbears like that, personally. I wonder if Heritage ever made any models of those with the bugbears. I don't know. I mean, with the jack-o'-lantern heads. Big chance for somebody yeah. to have a Kickstarter. Ooh. I mean, yeah, this could be something that Tom Tullis could yeah. do. Bug Heritage with the jack-o'-lantern heads. Heritage didn't, but I have to go back and look at Archive. That's the kind of thing Archive would have done back in the day. It does seem like I remember an artist making a boule recently, and it was really, really close to the original, <laughs> and that guy should probably do it. I think he's really good. <laughs> he's trying to learn to sculpt minis. <laughs> but yeah, I still have yet to to look at the, the horrible tomb, the, the original Tomb of Horrors that came with the D&D Art and Arcana set to compare the differences. Michael Whitwer was very kind and made sure I got a comp copy of that book, but it wasn't the fancy one with that little booklet in it. Ah, That looked cool as all get out. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, and it, it does have a lot of things that are different. You know, I mean, it, it even has references to like character classes that didn't make it into D&D. Um, th- things like that, because it talks about mystics and divines, which were planned for Eldritch Wizardry, but got collapsed into the psionics system. And this is all stuff that came from Steve Marsh and Gary Gygax, and kind of they're trying to develop these character classes in 74 and 75. So yeah, I mean, there, there's a wealth of just amazing 
historical data like that in it uh, if you're really into the history of D&D. But that's interesting to me that Steve Marsh was creating all this great content that didn't make it because I can pronounce mystic and divine. I've never been able to say Swahagen. Well, and that was all <laughs> stuff he got, you know, when he so, was studying. Hogan. Right. But there, there's a great story behind that if you haven't talked to him about it, which is that he was studying like missionaries who went to South America and, you know, the kind of the first people who encountered South American religion. And Sahuagan is the name of one of these missionaries that he was reading about. <laughs> and really? a lot of the other names that are that are really hard to pronounce with all the X's in them <laughs> that are in uh, Black Like the Ixixical or whatever. Exactly. The right. <laughs> these are all things that are from these like South American sources that these missionaries were, were acquiring. And I actually managed to hunt down some of those books when he told me about it. And you, you can find the, the source of all those names there. It's pretty cool. That's pretty sweet. Dude, that's my favorite thing about everything you write. It's, it's you know, scholarly. There are citations. I try yeah, I remember, to say things I think are true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I first wrote you about when Playing at the World first came out, I said, you know, so is this your dissertation? And if not, why not? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just a hobby. Well, you're very good at it. I seethe with envy at your research and diligence. <laughs> Frankly, this podcast is half... Uh, you being on the podcast is half the reason I'm here today because we see each other at conventions all the time and you're famous and I'm busy and we never get to chat. But when we have you as a guest on a podcast, I can say, hey. You can say, hey, and it's good to say, hey to you, sir. I mean, we always get a chance to talk these things that we do, at least briefly. Yeah. All too often with us, though, it's usually like, hey, John, we'll talk later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're on our way to do. a game. <laughs> well, this is the thing. You guys go there to play. I'm just there to do research and drink. So, you know, I mean, I'm well, that does remind me, though, a very important question we need to ask. Are you going to be at this year's North Texas? So I do have a ticket, which yes. puts me one up from last year, where I had to show up and kind of beg Mike at the last minute to, to let me in. Yeah, I do have if a ticket. If Mike did not let you in, there would have been a riot. Well, I mean, again, since I don't really do the events, it's not like I need a badge. I, and they, they won't throw you out of that little area where you drink. You know, I, I would still be there. Yeah, I am I am planning to be there this year. I, I try Yay. to make... GaryCon, North Texas, GameHole, GenCon is its own whole whole thing, but I still even try to make that. So at this point, I I, I don't know if GenCon's a convention so much as a lifestyle. It's big. Um, well, I mean, when I did the museum for it in 2017 uh, for the 50th GenCon, actually having to show up and do something on that scale for a convention that size that was really exhausting. That was tough. I, I like going and not having any responsibility. <laughs> It was worth it, though, because that was awesome. That was the last Gen Con I went to, and that whole setup with the Horticultural Hall was awesome. It was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, I wish we could have made that one. But, you know, it, it, we went to GaryCon, and I think there was like 2,000 people there when we went, what, a year or two ago, Liz? It was like two or three years yeah. ago at this point. And, and it was a bit much for me then. And then I'd read like 71,000 people at Gen Con. It was like... I know Liz and I are on that same page. <laughs> My soul shrivels up at the thought of being around 71,000 people. Right. 71,000 people is about 70,500 more than I can deal with. Yeah. yeah. Well, all I'll say is when we were doing uh, the press tour for Narcana, you know, we did like New York Comic Con and San Diego Comic Con, things like that. They make Gen Con seem provincial. These are things with 250,000 people. I think we're at New York Comic Con. It's it's unbelievable how huge Ooh. these things are. I, just, I mean, on the one hand, I'm thrilled that our, our geek culture has expanded so much. On the other, it's like, I'll, I'll enjoy it from a distance. Thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, be over here. I feel like one of those, if Mike and I got separated, we'd never see each other yeah. again. 
and he was never heard from again. Yeah. Pretty much. But he was happy because it's fun. <laughs> because, well, you know, it's gone. Okay, well, um, trying to think of any other questions. I suppose, uh, I don't suppose there's any interesting information you might have about Monsters, Monsters, or Tunnels and Trolls you'd like to share. Anything new or different that's come out in your research since playing at the world? I'm not sure that there's anything about those two in particular. I think they're, I think I had a relatively good grasp of those then. Definitely interesting systems. <laughs> I, know. I don't know. Yeah, they're it's, different. Um, I mean, I, I know that I got a lot of flack. I shouldn't say a lot. I got a certain amount of flack in playing at the world um, because people thought I was dismissive of Tunnels and Trolls uh, because I said the first print wasn't really playable as such, that you, you needed to import a lot of D&D's assumptions into it to play it. And I don't think I've changed my mind about that. <laughs> I do think that's still, oh, that's oh, still I, I see what you true. did there. You made the classic blunder of using logic and reason. <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my brain around why that would be insulting when a lot of people are very open about that's kind of how OD&D was as far as Chainmail. Yeah, and how mm -hmm. Chainmail was in terms of, of – I spent a lot of my time these days. In the last year, I've probably done four different blog posts just picking apart where every little element of Chainmail system came from. And it, it really is an anthology, right? It's, it's taking a bunch of things that were out there in the community and compiling them and modifying them and hacking them and turning them into this somewhat coherent system. Really, there's probably about four independent systems in Chainmail, right, that are just half Happen to all be published in the same booklet. There's no interaction between the jousting rules, say, and the fantasy combat rules. They're just kind of separate things that are in there. To this day, those are separate events at GaryCon. Yeah, I mean, when you go, when people say, what is it to play Chainmail? I'm like, go sit with Paul Stormberg and clap the coconuts at GaryCon, right? That, and you're playing Chainmail. <laughs> that's part of the Chainmail system. <laughs> oh, God, that's hilarious. Yeah, and aren't there a lot of things, I guess, really, about OD&D that... Gary was making an assumption that most people going into this were going to just understand certain things because of coming from a wargaming background and things that would not have ordinarily have been completely clear to someone coming in cold without a wargaming background. You think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of that. I mean, so I think that's inevitable that there's going to be an assumption that you know certain things from another game. No, definitely. And and you know, I mean, if there wasn't that dialogue example in OD&D, I'm not sure what you would think you're supposed to do with the rules. There's nothing that tells you mm -hmm. how to play on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. There's lots of great charts. You want to roll characters, you want to design dungeons, want to find random encounters. But a, a war game usually has like this section where in the rules it'll say, here's what a turn is. Like, you know, there's a combat phase and a movement phase. And like this player goes first and you do this. And, and you know, D&D doesn't have a structure remotely like that. And it doesn't really tell you through anything other than that transcript that's in the third book like what you're supposed to actually do <laughs> when you play it. Yeah, and, and it's kind of tempting to say, well, you know, it was the 70s and all the rules were like that. But I've read some of stuff of like Grants and Featherstones from the 60s. They're war game rule books. They have sections on how to explain a turn and, and combat. This is a fight Tim and I can have at the drop of a hat if I just bring it up, because he'll go to his grave saying that those three books were perfectly legible if you were a war gamer, you knew how to play. I'll so, have to take his word on that, because... <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think you, you can look at the reactions from the community, right? And the, the good thing is, you know, and this is one of the reasons why the main thing I study is fanzines. You know, a lot of people talked about how they tried to get this game to work <laughs> when it when it first came out. And there's just such a diversity of opinion about the most 
basic elements of the game. Just just today on a forum, I was posting about you know some someone was commenting that there were no clear rules for how much damage you did with a hit. The original D and D books, and there wasn't. It didn't say. And some people I thought. That. I think I read that thread. Yeah. So, so some people thought that you know a hit did exactly you know if you hit someone did one point of damage and some people thought it did a d6 and you know bill owen who was one of the founders of the judges guild he actually wrote to gary in 1975 to say hey we've got this problem in our gaming circle the players insist that when you hit you should do a d6 i think you only do like one point of damage each hit which is right and you know gary gary did say you do a d6 but it's not like this is in the rule book <laughs> people didn't know if when you rolled a d20 to hit you know in the two hit thing were you supposed to roll two d tens and add them, right? Since the, the dice that they got from creative publications just had, you know, the the zero through through nine, right, on them. Twice, yeah. So some people thought that's how you rolled saving throws, hit points, and take your bet. Yeah, for the longest time we used to when I first started playing with the guys at Delta Area Wargamers in the late seventies, it was standard to roll a D ten and a D six together. One through three, it's zero well one through ten and a four through six it's eleven through twenty that's how i started young man because that's all the dice we had we were thankful <laughs> actually we weren't I, I just had a bunch of cardboard chits, <laughs> chits. Uh, <laughs> you win yeah you win the chits uh the chits lovely, lovely. i want to ask john a question about forthcoming projects that he can talk about Got anything hot in the hopper Oh, I, I think people know in general the things I've been working on. So I, I have been working on this this corporate history of TSR from 1975 to 1985 for some time. And I don't know when it's going to come out. I've been working on it really since I wrote this piece called The Ambush of Sheridan Springs in 2014. Um, so that was five years ago now. But I certainly have a lot of text for it. And it, it'll come out eventually. And it contains all kinds of cool stuff. Well, as the guy who took 10 years to get his role-playing game out, I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> not going to criticize. And if you're if you're listening and you're interested in that, John often previews little tidbits from upcoming projects on your Playing at the World blog. That's also true. I do. Um, though mainly these days, I just try to post things there that are kind of in the, you know, things that I discovered as I'm doing research on something that I don't think fit anywhere else. I'm just, I think I'll just put that up there <laughs> and people are interested. They can read about it. But I think this is really cool, but I can't see a place in an upcoming book where it would go. So <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've got a bunch of things like that, that I'm putting up soon. One that is interesting to um, OSR people is Peter Aronson's full illusionist rules. So there were, Peter Aronson wrote in the illusionist class to the strategic review and then to the first issue of The Dragon. It's kind of published in these two parts. But after he did that, and he kind of had a chance to assimilate the new TSR material that was coming out, he did a revision to the whole illusionist class that is um, actually coherent. Those, those two parts don't quite align <laughs> in some respects, um, mm -hmm. because one was written before Greyhawk and one after, and he added some more spells and things like that. So when I get around to it, I'll be putting that up and... I think it's kind of cool That'd to see cool. the full OD&D illusionist class as it was meant to be by its creator. Cool. Yeah, I've always felt that that and the Bard class from OD&D was superior to what came later, both in the AD&Ds and, and the later classic retcons, but that's a personal. Well, and, and I mean, a lot of the stuff that he created in Illusionist, I mean, it's had long legs, like, if, you know, Fifth Ed still contains all these alter self, right, sorts of spells that um, that came right out of his rules originally. So When I was rereading Playing at the World, at least the 70s sections for 
for this show. Something that struck out to me, there's always been this controversy of how open and supportive Gary Gygax was to fan-made content in the first like year or two of D&D. And then he just seemed to kind of close down and circle the wagons, as it were, regarding D&D IP. It occurs to me that that was about the same time that U.S. copyright law changed significantly. Oh, in 76. And I wondered, you know, does that play into it any? Or was it just, you know, the conventional wisdom acceptance of he got tired of Dungeons and Beavers? Yeah, I think it's it's more the conventional wisdom. So the Copyright Act of 76, which went into effect January 1st of 78, I think it, it probably made them bother to copyright things <laughs> that they because they they were really informal about that in the first couple of years. But no, I, I, I think this was much more he was concerned that people were going to steal his lollipop, especially before 1979, when D&D became this phenomenon. Right. Um, when suddenly the New York Times, because of the James Dallas Egbert, the third things was having it on the front page and, you know, pe- people in the mainstream really started to learn about it. There was this this period, though from like 76 up to 79, where there were a lot of competing titles. There was a lot of some, you know, just imagine if James Dallas Egbert had been caught with chivalry and sorcery books instead of D&D books, right? (laughs) You know, that stuff actually is based on real world magic, right? (laughs) Like, um, you know, Symbolist and uh, and those guys, they were actually looking at real world grimoires and trying to do things that had like some relationship to existing magical traditions, whatever you want to make of that. You could imagine that could have been what lightning had struck instead of D&D. So there there was this, this period where I think he had to be intensely protective, right, of this. And once he saw the kinds of um, adaptations were being made and he, he became very concerned that somebody else would be eating his lunch and that this he had a big family to support. You know, this wasn't small stakes for him. This was his livelihood. Right. I, I, I see it more as that. Okay. And, you know, it, it, it's easy for us to money more quarterback it, but he, he was onto something that he and arguably Arneson, created that what are the odds that he'll ever create something with this mega phenomenon again? And we ran that code, didn't we, after 1985? Right. You know, he, he tried again and again to have lightning strike him twice. Once this thing was out there and become what it was, it would be very difficult to recreate something like it. And so the thing that Gary and Dave made, you know, it was something worth protecting, Right. Because really to play it was to make it your own because the the original game was so open-ended and just gave people so much license for creativity. It was inevitable that that creativity would fork into the tunnels and trolls of the world, right? Warlock, um, Audrin, Grimoire, and so on and so forth. Yeah, Yeah, I think I did uh, Arduin with you guys on that other show. Um, yeah, did yeah, I not? Yeah, yeah. That, that's the only reason that show had any uh, knowledgeable content in it. <laughs> we kept dragging <laughs> you back on. <laughs> right, right. It's like, yeah, well, we've never the... played Arduin. Let's get John yeah. Peterson. <laughs> any other questions? I know, you know, John has is a busy guy, so I don't want to take up more of his time than we have to. I'm good. Thank you for joining us again, John. It's my pleasure. No, I, I've been meaning to come on for a while, and, and Mike and Liz are always always asking me, and then it's just finding the right schedule and the right topic. 70s RPGs, that's an easy one for me. Happy to talk about the 70s. Yeah. That's very kind of you to say. Mike and Liz are always asking me. They <laughs> I don't beg, mean that. Like, they stalk me at cons. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They don't. Let me retcon that. We have been talking for some time about trying to find the right opportunity for me to be present. And yes. No, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's my pleasure.
next time we'll have a have a appropriate topic you know that you feel interested in coming on and talking about you're always welcome empire empire mm. pedal throne i mean empire. there are better people to get than me from than me for pedal throne there are people who really know that stuff intimately probably better people to get to review it than all four of us but you know but we're that's what we've right got, so mm. all right well thanks again and uh everybody hope you've enjoyed this one half episode for say for half thanks again for listening and say good night everybody good night good night see you good night free arc disco <laughs>